0: And welcome to another episode of the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Nega Murtaza V, in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we'll talk about Europe Iran relations and tensions as they have been increasing in the past year or so. We'll talk about the current state of the nuclear program, any potential nuclear negotiations, what role Europe is playing in these negotiations, the recent prisoner swaps between. Iran and some European countries, and also how Iran-Europe political and trade relations have changed over the past few years, and particularly after Russia's attack on Ukraine and also domestic protests inside Iran. My guest today is Ruzbeh Parsi, head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, based in Stockholm. Ruzbeh, thank you for joining the Iran
1: Podcast. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you. Let's first start from the recent prisoner swaps between Iran and a couple of European countries with um, the central role of Belgium. Basically, one Iranian diplomat who was charged with attempting to um, plant a bomb at an MEK event in Paris was seemingly swapped with three European nationals who were detained and held in Iran. Talk about what happened, um, if you know of any of the back channel negotiations, or basically what we saw unfolding in public, and how this prisoner swap essentially came to, um, uh, to fruitation in the past few weeks.
1: Well, I don't, I'm not privy to the details, but it's clear that um, doing this kind of prisoner swap in Europe is has been and remains more complicated than the ones that the U.S. has done, for instance. Um, so here it seems that it requires some kind of legal framework, uh, or that's at least how it's been portrayed, and that has required then some kind of parliamentary approval. So there was a huge discussion and and, and conflict, if you will, Uh, politically inside Belgium, with regard to whether a law could be passed that would make that possible. And in the end, the law was passed, but it's not clear whether the law was actually used. Either way, uh, in the end, the Iranian diplomat who was convicted of terrorism was swapped uh, for a number of EU citizens who were returned to Europe.
0: Mm -hmm. And would you see this as a new opening in Iran, Europe relations, or specifically with these countries, Belgium and, and the others, or do you see this as one-off and not really relating to the big picture of all these other issues that are the source of Iran and Europe tensions?
1: No, I think uh, considering the other question that you posed regarding Ukraine and so on, I think at this point, it's clear that most of this is about just tying up loose threads rather than uh, beginning a restart of a relationship, if you will. Um, I don't think there is much appetite on the European side of having better relations with Iran at the moment for a host of reasons.
0: Mm -hmm. So let's take a step back, Roosevelt, uh, Mm -hmm. look at the big picture a little bit. We know Europe played a central role. Um, European Union, and a number of European major European countries. The E3, um, France, Germany, UK, played central role in the nuclear negotiations during the Obama era, the nuclear deal, JCPOA. And then they also tried to play a key role uh, during the Trump years when the U.S. was first threatening and eventually pulled out of the nuclear deal and sort of Uh, tried to keep that deal alive, although on life support. And then now in the past two years, um, almost three years now, um, Europe has had a different position when it comes to Iran. So talk about how this change has happened and where the Europeans are standing now.
1: Well, I mean, in a sense, they were shocked like everyone else that Trump got elected. And for a while, they thought that they could still keep him on their side vis-à-vis the viability of the nuclear deal. Now, of course, that all crashed in 2018 when he left. And then the Europeans were the only ones who could save the deal by making sure that the incentive that had brought Iran into the deal to begin with, economic exchange, could be maintained and upheld. And it turned out that the Europeans couldn't do that. Politically, to some degree, they wanted to, but structurally, in terms of their ability to uh, exercise this so-called strategic autonomy when it comes to fiscal matters, when it comes to trade, it turned out they didn't have much. Uh, And the special purpose vehicle, the INSTEX instrument that they built to try and facilitate transactions for trade between Iran and Europe, did not function. It was shut down earlier this year. So in many ways, they confirm some of the worst suspicions and, and accusations in Tehran that the Europeans are simply either unwilling or incapable uh, of actually standing on their own and, and honoring something that they believe should work. And so that leads us to the situation where the JCPOA simply started to fade away And then the Iranians added their own pressure to the Europeans by doing less for less, which is that they started to not adhere to their own obligations under the agreement as a way of pressuring the Europeans to understand that this is not uh, something set in stone that will remain no matter how much everyone else ignores the agreement. And so that in itself was bad enough, so to speak. The Europeans were fed up with the Iranians. And then when Biden came, they felt that, you know, Biden will fix this. They don't have to care as much. And that, of course, did not turn out to be true either. Uh, and as that wasn't enough to kind of cement bad blood between Tehran and the Europeans. We had the Ukraine war. And then on top of that, the unrest and, and protests in Iran last year and the violent repression of them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's specifically talk about Ukraine after Russia's attack on Ukraine and Iran basically supporting Russia, even supplying a weaponry to, to Russia for that war. How has that changed or shifted European views towards Iran as a whole, the European Union, and then also in specific countries who, uh, some of them, as I said, were instrumental in negotiations with Iran and the outreach, and then? the deal in the
1: JCPOA. Well, I think we have to take almost one further step back and look at what is the European understanding of what's happening when Russia invades Ukraine. And that is that as far as the Europeans are concerned, this this is a watershed moment in history. This is equal to the attack, if you will, that started World War II and the fall of the wall and the crumbling of the Soviet empire. Uh, So in in a sense, we are moving into a new Cold War with the mentality that you are either on our side uh, or the enemy's side. There isn't any middle ground. Now, that idea is much more difficult to uphold politically because the rest of the world has become multipolar. So they do have other places they can go to than just the West or uh, Russia. But that means that the Europeans very strongly feel that this is a defining conflict. And the fact that Iran, and not only Iran, but many countries are hedging, or in the case of Iran, actually supporting Russia, just means that uh, the credibility and the viability of having political relations with a country that is so troublesome to begin with, but then also puts itself in this position now, is is nigh impossible.
0: Mm-hmm. And what about uh, Iran's domestic unrest and protests, we saw major protests after the death in custody or the killing of Masa Amini, the young Kurdish woman in September of last year, months of anti-government protests across the country, hundreds of protesters killed, uh, the state responding to these protests with an iron fist, security forces using a lot of violence, brutality on the street, arresting Thousands of Iranians protesters, and executing a few. How has that impacted Europe's position and view vis-à-vis Iran in the in the past less than a year?
1: Well, I mean, in a sense, you could say that the Ukraine conflict, in in policy terms, is. Uh, a kind of a defining moment and uh, a red thread throughout whatever positions that the Europeans take. But domestically, Iran is not a big deal in Europe until the protests and the violent repression of them. At that point, you could see that Iran becomes a domestic issue because of the diaspora. So if Ukraine is a pure, if you will, foreign policy issue, where Iran is is showing colors that no one in Europe can accept, then domestically, politically in Europe, the protests and the way they were dealt with uh, has made it even more difficult to even entertain the idea that there are any agreements of any kind that one should try and and make with Iran.
0: Well, you mentioned the diaspora. I wanted to ask you about the role of the Iranian diaspora. We know the Iranian diaspora here in the U.S. are various different Political beliefs and factions, but the the majority, of, or I would say all of them, supportive of the struggles of Iranian protesters in Iran, um, have been activated in Europe. Also, we saw there has been an active diaspora politically, but we saw more and more, um, of of these diaspora members joining in various different countries. A number of very large protests were held in Germany. Um, in, in a few other European countries, and um, even members of the diaspora who are within various European governments as lawmakers or, or government officials, diplomats, have been activated and vocal. How do you assess the role of the Iranian diaspora in, first of all, influencing European policies towards Iran um, in, in various countries and EU as a whole? and um, sort of shaping or or shifting that understanding and that policy towards a country?
1: Well, I mean, I would say that uh, the sentiments are clear and, and the emotions as well and, and what they're reacting against. Uh, but in terms of whether it has enriched the policy discussion, the intellectual debate on how to assess what's happening in Iran and then what would be... Uh, reasonable, prudent, and viable for policymakers outside of Iran to try and do. In the sense of, you know, at least having some kind of assessment of what could work uh, towards what end. In that sense, the diaspora, I think, has been uh, more detrimental than helpful. Because the way that they have been going about trying to, quote unquote, discuss the issues and who can get to discuss them uh, has actually made things much more complicated and difficult to understand rather than the other way around. So I think in a way they have stifled political debate about Iran in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, and they have forced a number of politicians to of course take a position uh, vis-a-vis Iran and the protests. But whether those positions will translate into actually policy positions as in a change of not only attitude but what is viable and possible to do that remains to be seen. But in the open, in the sense of in public debate, in in the public sphere, a politician now in Europe cannot uh, voice the idea of negotiations with Iran. So that diaspora has has achieved, if you will. Uh, But then what they want to do with that remains an open question, because not talking does not achieve anything in and of itself. It just makes certain possible solutions much more difficult. And the diaspora has remained unified more in its opposition towards the Islamic Republic and any idea of interaction with it than when it comes to trying to say what they want instead, and more importantly, how they want to achieve it. At that point, we see how it fragments, uh, because they have very different ideas of what they want and how they intend to achieve it.
0: Um, So let's also talk about this toxicity, I would call it, as, as you mentioned, I know you have been the subject of some attacks, both online and some even physical by the diaspora. I have been subjected, a number of journalists in the diaspora, analysts, academics, members of civil society have been subjects of this attack um for providing a nuanced view or reporting or analysis on Iran when it comes to journalists for providing um you know more pro diplomacy or pro peace views pro nuclear negotiations as opposed to maximum pressure or sanctions and eventually war talk about um some of this toxicity elaborate a little bit, bit and and how you think this is going to um, be influencing or having a negative impact on the overall policy and discourse in the long term?
1: Well, I mean, as you said, I mean this, the, the problem with this toxicism, I mean, there is a number of problems, but the, the most overarching one is that you can't have a reasonable debate. Uh, so we cannot try and argue our way to positions and potential solutions and, and work out the process of how to get there. Slogans, anyone can come with slogans. The, the, the devil in the detail is how are you going to try and make it happen? What are the instruments you have at your disposal? What are the instruments you need to get at your disposal to all do any of that? And those are the things that are simply missing because everyone is just throwing slogans around and accusations. And I think that is a disservice to public debate in democracies which we live in, and it's definitely a disservice to the people in, in Iran who risk their lives protesting, uh, because this is none of this is going to be of any tangible help to them in whatever it is that they want to achieve. And in the long run, they are the ones who are going to decide what should be achieved, because it's their country. Uh, sitting in, in Stockholm or sitting in, in, in New York or wherever and, and dictating or deciding that for them is, is you know, it's, it's more an exercise in narcissism than anything else. But the the other problem with this, of course, is that what these groups show is that they are unable to have a conversation within reasonable bounds, even among themselves, within a democratic setting. And, and this is a problem if they want to be a viable help to those who are trying to achieve change inside Iran. And I think that's on the diaspora, because in that they have no excuse. They're living in democracies, they have uh, capacities and institutions at their disposal to try and develop some kind of platform, some kind of discourse uh, on democracy and other Uh, such uh, important values for the future of Iran. uh, But so far, very little has been achieved. What you rather see is these wish lists that they send to European politicians and others telling them sanction this, do that, etc, etc. But that just implicitly tells you that they don't have the ability to organize themselves into doing something. Rather, they expect other people to do it for them.
0: And Ruzba, just one final um question on this. We you did mention that there has been some influence in in policy, in the in in the positions, but we see sometimes statements coming from European officials. For example, in the case of Belgium, there was a lot of criticism. Um, at the foreign ministry, um, that they have come out with statements in support of the protesters, and then they also turn around and go and do a prisoner swap with Iran. Also, with the request of designating the IRGC as a terrorist organization, for example, another example, that when it comes to concrete policy requests, that it doesn't necessarily follow the statements um, that some European officials, countries or EU as a whole have made towards Iran in seemingly support of human rights. Do you see a disconnect there as far as what, what statements are issued and what these countries are actually seeing as their policy and actual positions towards the country?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, we have to remember that politics to some degree is always balancing what you want with what you can get. Okay, so there's an element of pragmatism here. The second is that you can get politicians in Europe to react to public opinion. They will react to public opinion on anything as long as there is a strong public opinion. You know, uh, anything from cats in public to you name it. So in this case, when the diaspora uh, shows up in strength and argues for this or that, they will react to that. But then they have to sit down with the desk officers in their Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who are the ones who follow countries like Iran, And their assessment, I think, in general, is more cool-headed and more level-headed, which is these protests are significant, but this is not a revolution in the making. and, And therefore, we still need to maintain different kinds of relationships with the people who actually hold power in Iran. And that also, of course, includes, on the one hand, to condemn Iran for what it does. But yes, if you have citizens imprisoned there that you think are unjustly imprisoned, it's also your job to try and get them free.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, let's uh, move on to the big picture again. We've seen Iran making a shift uh, to the east, a move to the east towards Russia. We discussed China and uh, as they... Slowly lost hope in a revival of the JCPOA relations with the US, um, trade with Europe. We see more and more of that shift, and then also more openings towards the region. Let's first talk about that shift to the east. Do you see that? Um, it, it seems ongoing, but do you see that as a long term strategic, um, a view of Iranian foreign policy? Are they moving away from the West entirely? Do you think they still have some eye on Europe and a potential of a return to some form of political and trade relations? Or do you think this is going to be um what we're seeing as far as Iran in the near and long term future?
1: Well I think you know there's always been a debate in Tehran, probably also before the revolution, about how how much, how many of your eggs do you want to put in the American basket, to put it simply, uh, or the European basket? And while historically speaking, Europe and the US later were the big centers of modernity and everything Iran wanted to achieve, it's also been clear that uh, Asia was going to come back and therefore also become again important for Iran. So I think the idea of striking a balance between them is. Is, you know, it doesn't take a and scientist to understand that that is a sound policy. The problem is when people hype China, uh, not because they think it's important to have a relationship with China, but because they're desperately trying to get away from being forced to deal with that they might need to have a relationship with the US and Europe. So I think there is a push and pull. And some of the push away from Europe is uh, Iranian, Overthinking and trying to hope for more from China than China will deliver. Uh, and therefore, they're making mistakes in understanding that they need to balance China as well. They can't just jump onto that ship.
0: Mm-hmm. And, Roosevelt, what about the region? We saw more openings towards the region, basically. Iran, the most important one, Iran um, making an agreement. Um, sort of surprising with Saudi Arabia brokered by China. This also relates to that shift back to the east Um, and attempts of more uh, negotiations with some of its Arab neighbors, while also on the other side on the flip side, the Abraham Accords have been uh, happening with the US help expanding to more Arab countries. How do you see Iran's outreach or engagement with some of its rivals, or or I would just call them neighbors in the region?
1: Well, I think it was uh, long due. So it was good that it happened. And it was, of course, part of the Raisi government's attempt to claim that they would have a more clever foreign policy than the predecessor, uh, President Rouhani had, which was much more geared towards solving the nuclear issue with the Americans and the Europeans. So I think the idea of of not ignoring Saudi Arabia is always good. The question is how far this rapprochement can go. And I think there are one of the structural constraints besides the fact that there are people in Riyadh and in Tehran who think of this only in tactical terms. This is about calming the waters, not building a bridge. Uh, though they should know that they ought to build a bridge, is that if they get to the point of wanting to build a bridge, there the American sanctions will be one of the structural constraints to that. So there, Saudi Arabia, in a sense, will have to make a choice of how far they're willing to go in in not towing the American line, and whether that, in turn, will accelerate the Chinese presence, because one way of creating that kind of investment relationship with Iran would then require Chinese aid and help, since the Western-dominated financial system will still continue to punish Iran. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Rusbe, also just recently last week, we saw former Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif uh, after a period of silence um, back on Clubhouse. There was a long session of interview and discussions, and um, called some call it even a firestorm. Um, some of the highlights of what he mentioned were essentially focusing on. Iran failing to compromise when it comes to its foreign policy, specifically towards the West. And he's mentioned numerous instances of how, uh, first of all, him and other diplomats have been considered traitors for trying to compromise, and how Iran has been, Iranian policy has been unable or failing in offering necessary compromises to resolve some of his, uh, its issues. Talk about. Um, that and if you can essentially put that in comparison, the Rouhani administration, the Zarif diplomatic um, apparatus to how this administration, the new administration in Tehran, the hardline Raisi administration is conducting policy.
1: Well, I think uh, when we're talking about conservatives of various shades in Iran, uh, they're very reminiscent of the Republicans in the U.S which is they have become more and more radicalized, and their idea of governing is basically becoming more radical than anyone else. And when that fails, you just become even more radical. There is no constructive policy idea behind all of it. It's, in a sense, a constant opposition, even though you are in power. So I think when Zarif talks about that, um, in a sense, what he's saying is that instead of learning from past mistakes, of taking it too far, and learning to compromise on in time, in order to be able to salvage what can be salvaged. uh, These guys basically just push the envelope so far that they end up in a situation where when they finally realize they need a compromise, the, the conditions are going to be much worse than if they had just had some sense about it six months earlier. And I think what we've seen in the last 18 months or so in the nuclear negotiations is a perfect example of that. So this is an ideological drive among some groups on the right in Iran, partly because they have nothing else going for them, and partly because they're obsessed with this nostalgia for the 1980s kind of war against Iraq, where everyone was a brethren, blah, 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 uh, which doesn't translate into actual policy. It's a sentiment that you then let guide everything. And in this case, the Bet Noir, the, the, the ones you're not supposed to talk to or or compromise with are the Americans. Uh, and at the same time, you know, a lot of the things they do understand that Iran needs to achieve will require some kind of uh, compromise with exactly the United States. And instead of trying to be level-headed about that and do it in a timely fashion. Uh, they end up driving straight into the wall. And then after the crash, they think, oh, we might need to compromise.
0: Mm-hmm. And finally, Ruzba, let's talk about where we are today. We're hearing about some possible back channel talks or engagements between Iran and the US for a potential prisoner swap, maybe talk of an interim agreement, although there have been reports and there have been denials. So, Sounds like something may be going on or maybe happening. What is your reading or analysis of the situation? I know we've been sort of in the same place a few times over the past couple of years, um, but what is your reading of the situation? What do you think is a, is a possibility, even, um, of, of any form of engagement or an agreement between Iran and the US?
1: Well, in a sense, you know, at the moment, the JCPOA is more fiction than reality. Um, And you can compare it to the other big attempt of creating peace in the region, which was the Middle East peace process. Now, the Middle East peace process has been dead for a long time, but we live with the fiction that it's in a coma because it suits everyone. And the ones that it doesn't suit, the Palestinians, don't have any say-so anyways. So in a sense, Israel won that war or game, and it suits them that we maintain the fiction that there is something called the Middle East peace process. Now, that kind of fiction is much more difficult to maintain when it comes to the JCPOA, because the conditions that are no longer met, because no one follows the JCPOA, are too dangerous. And because exactly Israel will not countenance Iran moving towards a nuclear weapon. So they are definitely not interested in the fiction of a status quo where the agreement doesn't work, but everyone pretends that things are still pretty okay or or at least okay enough not to escalate. So in that sense, it's in everyone's interest to actually try and do something, whether it's an interim deal, a three-quarters deal, whatever, anything to just basically lower the temperature. And maybe, just maybe, that could be a stepping stone towards reinitiating the JCPOA when the political domestic conditions, especially in the United States, are conducive for that, which means after the presidential elections next year. Assuming, of course, whoever becomes president is still interested in this kind of stuff. So in that sense, there are structural reasons why it would be a good idea to have an interim deal. But that in and of itself is... Uh, you know, necessary condition, but definitely not a sufficient condition, because those structural needs have been there before without any kind of compromise being reached. So there is a need for it. And that speaks for that some of the rumors might be true. But there's absolutely no guarantee that it will be fulfilled. Mm -hmm.
0: And finally, I want to talk about Iran's domestic scene and looking a little bit to the future. We talked about foreign policy, regional policy, but In the past few months, as I mentioned, since September, but also rounds of protests we saw in the years leading to that, there has been massive domestic unrest, dissatisfaction with the state, with the status quo, politically, economically, socially, even culturally. These last round of protests essentially started over the mandatory hijab or the dress code. Um, the state responding with violence, brutality, essentially an iron fist, lots of human rights violations. The economy in Iran is very weak. We see mass inflation and rising. And essentially, the state is dealing with a crisis of legitimacy of all these different segments of society continually and periodically um, protesting against the state. How do you see Iran's domestic seen in this unrest playing out in the near future?
1: Well, I mean, one of the things that none of us really want to think about, but we have to acknowledge is that authoritarian states are much more resilient than anyone wants to give them credit for because everyone becomes impatient with hoping that they will change into something much better, uh, usually something much more democratic. So there's always a point where we say, this something just has to give. Uh, this cannot continue, and then it does. So that's part of the bitter truth that you know, you have to acknowledge uh, when looking at countries like Iran. Now, domestically, it's quite clear that the legitimacy deficit that you alluded to is huge, and the protests last year were a qualitative jump downwards in a sense of, of not just a slow, steady trickle of less legitimacy, but a huge jump down towards much less legitimacy. What makes it even more difficult for the state or or worse is, of course, that it's ineptitude in managing society and economy. So it doesn't really have much working for it at the moment. It's not delivering any goods or services that can, in some shape or form, compensate for its total lack in other areas. So this is a problem. The second problem is that there are far too many people in the state apparatus who are comfortable with the present situation and who think that whatever they need to do to maintain stability is a slightly more oppression. And then people will go home and they can continue the same way that they have. Now that might work to some degree, but what you see is that society will erode. A poorer, continuously poorer country uh, with corruption and with less and less services, education, all kinds of areas are going to suffer even more than they do already which means that you are getting a slow erosion and crumbling of important societal institution where the state basically just presides over this and maintains its security apparatus as a guarantee for its own survival. Uh, And this, of course, is a very bleak picture. The flip side of that, if you will, that the potential optimism lies in the fact that the Iranian population is politically quite educated, and generally very educated, and seems to find the energy and the hope and the spark to continuously protest against these conditions. Each new generation is, in a sense, said to be too harshly disappointed to want to try, and yet they do. The question is, how is this going to be channeled? How is this going to be framed? And how is it going to become something constructive? Or is it simply just going to be a destructive reaction to the conditions? And this is where political leadership and the ability to be able to carve out some space to talk about what an alternative future can be becomes absolutely essential.
0: Beth, thank you so much for joining the Iran podcast. Thank you. That was Ruzbe Parsi, head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs, based in Stockholm. And thank you for listening to the new season of The Iran Podcast. You can find us on all major podcast apps, so please subscribe to us and leave a review and rating to help us be seen and heard by more listeners. You can also support our work by going to The Iran Podcast on Spotify. And you can follow us on Twitter, where we post about new episodes and guests. Our Twitter handle is at Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi in Washington, D.C. And until next week, goodbye.